Chapter 2, War Stories. Episode 6, Invading Iraq. Factors that affect a visual search include weather, altitude, airspeed, terrain, and visual cues. With regards to altitude, the higher you are, the greater visibility you have. The lower you are, the more survivability you have. Airspeed selection is determined by the altitude, terrain, weather, and the threat. Part 2. War Stories. Iraq. Colonel Blackman and Gary both deployed to Iraq. Both had been pilots for several years before they deployed, and as we've heard, they trained for what they thought would be the next war, a war with Russia. But of course, that wasn't the case, and they found themselves not just on the front lines of a new war, something they hadn't yet experienced, but a war unlike anything they could have prepared for. I again had the distinct advantage of learning how to fly from men and women who'd flown in combat before me, had learned how to manage all of the radios, the gunfire, the emergencies, the mission. They did not. Iraq proved to be a battle not just against the enemy, but against a bureaucratic system that sought to sometimes restrain common sense in the environments that required it the most. Um, you know, they led while, while they were, everybody had aviation wise had Mogadishu in, in their mind. They knew this was going to be most likely a city to city fight. And so there were some, some aviation officers that essentially there were some general officers, one in particular who said, we're not, we're not flying over cities. We learned our lesson in Mogadishu. My squadron commander uh, was the 1st Battalion, 160th Little Bird guy, and he's like, well, hey, we learned lessons from that. We learned, you know, you don't hover in the city. Uh, stay low. Uh, don't give them a, you know, a good shot profile. If you get up high, then, you know, they can aim and shoot. And uh, and don't don't fly slow. Keep a, That's where we started talking about bucket speed. That's where that started. But that's where we really start talking about you, you move, you don't. You don't hover, which drove to we had to employ the weapon systems on the Kiowa like um, like the Little Birds in 160th. So diving, running fire. We went right back. You know, before that, guys were shooting, hovering fire. And it was so inaccurate. And it was so embarrassing. I'll never forget because I flew Alpha Charlie models first. And when I went to the AQC in 95 for the Delta, this guy took me out on range, going to demo the gun, comes to a hover, squeezes the trigger. And this thing yaws like 30 degrees left and he cuts a tree down off the range. <laughs> and I'm like, holy cow, this thing is horrible, you know? And uh, rockets, you know, we were shooting, lobbing these rockets out there at you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred meters and and beyond and just proximity. And I was like, wow. Man, I went to two seventeen, Steve Schiller. Number one, they were shooting at eight hundred, you know, five hundred to eight hundred meters from the target, diving, running fire and hitting I mean, he could shoot through a window. I saw him shoot rockets in a doorway one day. I mean a pair. Just he could shoot. It's not entirely fair to laugh at the idea of hover fire. That was the war we thought we would be fighting. We thought we'd be flying aircraft into fixed battle positions and shooting enemy from those locations. What is entirely fair to laugh at is the idea of that ever actually working in Iraq. So, 
once they realized that a hover fire in a city wasn't really the smartest idea, they figured out some different solutions. But Steve then really thought off the map. So he said, I don't, I don't want hellfire. So we, and at that point we had three attack battalions. So you got all these Apaches. He's like, why, why would I put a hellfire missile on a Kiowa? I've got, I've got, you know, three battalions of Apaches that can, can do that all day. I only want rockets in 50 cal. And if I don't, if I can't hover and I don't want to fly slow, why do I need an MMS? And so one of the first initiatives he did was number one, he, he did what he, the weight reduction program. And this is all his independent thinking. And it really, I mean, he, he assumed a lot of risk. So he, he took, he took all the, uh, the engine cowling armor off. He took the, um, we took the ALQ 144s off. We wound up taking the MMSs off and all the boxes associated. And uh, because our power margins were low in the desert. And so we wound up saving over 400 pounds, taking it off the Kiowa. And suddenly we have more power. We were more maneuverable. And it was a game changer. Now, I, there were aviators turning themselves inside out because you can't do that. Who would alter the airframe? Of course, you know, the, the site guys were having a coronary because they wanted their MMS proven in combat. And here Steve Schiller has taken them off. Um, you know, so the, the defense industry complex is, you know, <laughs> getting upset because of some of these choices. And, and he was willing to assume the risk and do things that others would not do. The mast mounted site is one of the most distinguishing features of the Kiowa. If you ever see a picture, um, it kind of looks like an alien sitting on top of the rotor system. Um, it's this ball and it's got these two lenses that kind of look like eyes and cameras inside of there and what have you. But it's it's not just the ball that sits on top. It's also the computers that sit in the back of the airframe with wires and all of these parts that make the thing work like it's supposed to work. And it was this huge innovation when it got added because it was supposed to increase our ability to stand off from a target but still see it and shoot it. And of course, if you take it off, then you don't get to use it. But as Colonel Blackman said, if it wasn't serving a purpose on the battlefield, if they weren't flying in a way that enabled them to use it, then why have it? And of course, if you can reduce how heavy the helicopter is, you can increase its range, increase its power, ultimately increasing its lethality, and its ability to serve and protect the ground forces. And that reinforced some of the thinking that, that I had experienced in, you know, about what, why do we do the things we do? Why do we go to the NTC and get our butts handed to us every day by lunch, and then we repeat the same thing the next day? Why aren't we thinking asymmetrically? Why aren't we, you know, if, if the doctrine doesn't work, let's change the doctrine. But again, aviators were trained to follow, follow the battle drill, follow the X check, follow the script no thought necessary and and we saw it play out during the invasion i mean the 11th attack helicopter regiment decided to do a deep attack look i was a brigade planner in the 90s in germany i could plan a deep attack inside out i mean we'd do warfighter after warfighter and and we'd plan these things and it was all going to work out like we simulated it if we really had to do it well we really decided to do it in um 2003 and the 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment launched 30 airplanes following their script 
and they were decimated. I mean, every aircraft shot to shreds. I think one would crank the next day. One aircraft shot down all over Al Jazeera in the news. Two POWs taken. They flew the same ingress and egress routes, company after company, getting shot to pieces, and no company commander stopped to say, I'm not flying up that route. This is insane. What are we doing? You know, they just continued to execute the X jet. And I don't blame those company commanders. That's the army they were raised in. That's the army that you just followed the script. No need for thinking down at the lowest levels, right? And problem solving. Uh, it feels very good to command and control where the, the general or the colonel is the offensive coordinator. He calls the play. He's up in his Black Hawk and he can observe everything and make all the calls. We got a very different war. And that was an eye opener that, hey, we need, you know, air mission commanders empowered, trusted and empowered to make independent decisions. But in order to do that, you've got to train and trust or you won't empower we we got that much better as the war went on, but we never got it as good as we could have. We learned a lot, you know, um, because we, we tried and, and we, we assumed too much risk at times. Again, I, I know I keep referring to this next book that will be out in February, but I, I explore this a lot. I, I'm open about we, we flew single pilot, single ship a lot. Um, and both myself and Steve Schiller in hindsight say, why did we do that? That was too much risk. Um, there are times to do it. So I don't believe in, you know, in flat ass rules you can or can't do this. But, uh, um, you know, there were times, I mean, I remember flying from Q West to Talifar, single ship, single pilot, uh, to pick up our new assistant S2 and fly her back, um, for a job. I mean, why? Anything could have happened, even just a little, you know, a, a, a maintenance problem. And I'm with an FM radio. We had no satellite radios. Um, we had no Blue Force tracker. We had none of that stuff. It was me and a map, um, you know, an hour and something flight time into the desert. And so we, we, we learned from those things. Um, I mean, I, me and Steve Schiller, single ship um had some guys in the middle of nowhere one day so here's a squadron commander in s3 going to a meeting in mosul and these guys pull a ak-47 on us as we fly by we circle we literally landed and i held them at, i got out of the helicopter held them at gunpoint with my pistol took their ak-47 away from them put it in the helicopter and we flew away why <laughs> why <laughs> Yet we also learned things about ourselves. So we had not been at QS for more than two months when our, especially our warrant officers uh, at brigade level wanted to turn QS into Campbell Army Airfield. They wanted all the lights and whistles on. They wanted a square traffic patterns. They wanted, and they did all this. All this was done in the name of safety. And we refused to comply, which caused some consternation, but we're like, we're better than this. Push the envelope. Be disciplined. Turn those lights off. Use your night vision goggles and your slime lights and, you know, vary it up. We were sitting patterns and we're like, we're, we're at combat and we're, we're naturally creatures of habit. And I really, you know, use that in Afghanistan a lot to watch. I used to look at the Blue Force Tracker traces to see where do we set patterns because – as a cavalryman, again, you're thinking the enemy's going to set patterns, right? They're creatures of, of habit as well. So let's exploit those things. 
well, don't give that to them. Gary had similar experiences in Iraq of learning how to disavow himself of some of the training they'd done in favor of what was actually going to work in cities, in the desert. But of course, before they could do any of that, they had to actually get there. And this is how Gary reacted to uh, getting the call to go to war. The crazy story, here, this is a crazy story for you. So um, we're, we're like four days, five days out. We don't even know when we're leaving. We just knew we were going to be recalled. That's how the 82nd did stuff. So we've packed everything up. It's in context. As I'm hanging out at home, uh, me and a guy named Mike McEvers, we decided we were going to go play golf. So our deal was Mike played golf. I would get the cart, buy some beer. I would drive around drinking beer, and he would take me home. We had just got the cart, cracked the first beer. He's on the first tee, hit the ball, and his phone rang. I'm looking at him. He's like, we got to go. I'm like, go where? He's like, <laughs> he's like, Gary, we're going to war. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> and I'm like, what do I do with the beer? You know, I'm like, get the beer. You know, I'm like, does any of that matter? No. But yeah, so we, we, we headed in and we left. And, uh, you know, arriving in Kuwait was just uh, absolutely um, we spent 30 days in Kuwait waiting to do it. And we trained. We did gunnery. Uh, so, yeah, 3ID, uh, you know, they led the way. Uh, and those Kai was over there did, you know, in the cab. Awesome job. And, of course, you had the Marines, too, doing their thing. Uh, the 82nd was held in strategic reserve. Um, and, actually, our original battle plan was that uh, three days into the uh, assault is what we would follow. Uh, 3rd of 325 was going to jump in. Uh, to Baghdad airport. And then we were going to air land. And I thought it was all a bunch of crap. That was probably one of the coolest things about the Kiowa is that you could, you know, put some wheels on it, jack it up, fold the blades back, push it into a big Air Force airplane, fly it wherever you needed it, roll it off the back of the airplane, unfold the blades and fly. This is for real. We, we are going to air land these things. We're going to push them out the back. We're going to build them up in less than 14 minutes, and we're going to take off. And uh, that is when the, the 4th Armored Division of, the, of Iraq came out when Turkey closed the port. They were hauling back. They were headed back into Baghdad at the same time. Um, and then the storm happened. We derigged everything, and then we drove into Talil. But the day we kicked off in the convoy, I don't know anybody was, it, you know, everybody was a lot of anxiety. You know, I drove up there with an Air Force JTAC that I couldn't even wear my gas mask because all the radios in the back. I had to put the gas mask around the passenger seat drive. And then he didn't have a door on it, so I had to put 550 cord on it. And I just kept thinking the whole way up there is like, if we take contact right and he breaks left, I'm going to be left in the road. So I put some 550 cord up just to keep me in the vehicle. Obviously, some of the legacies from Iraq include learning how to fight insurgencies and what may or may not work. But another one of them is certainly the need to better equip our troops. The fact that Gary invaded a country by tying himself into a Humvee so he didn't fall out. Um, yeah, we definitely needed better equipment. And that's probably also one of the 
bigger legacies from Iraq is that we began equipping most of our units with things like up-armored Humvees as opposed to soft-sided vehicles. The invasion is, we did something very unique in history, is we brought 12 aircraft and 24 crews. Basically, based on the phase maintenance of the Kiowa, as it could fly more than the crews could. And that was my brigade, uh, battalion commanders. That is what he sold, 2nd Brigade Commander, uh, 325. So basically, we would be able to provide continuous support because of the way the Kiowa had phase maintenance. Instead of like an Apache, you know, there's a 400 or 500 hour where they ripped the engines out of it. Ours was one continuous ongoing. We knew we could, that we'd have more aircraft hours than pilots could fly. And that was what was sold. So when the invasion kicked off, 3ID had cleared Talil Air Base. Um, 12 crews took 12 aircraft up there. I rode a convoy with the Air Force JTACs on the way up there, and we all linked up in the morning. It was kind of crazy. Um, so there I'm in Talil. I actually did the first MVG flight for 182 attack. I was on that mission. Um, and I mean, that was black as black can be. Man, that was so dark that night. It was scary. It was scary dark. Um, and no ambient light, nothing. Then we went out and did that flew with Mark Teeden, Captain Phillips, and Dave Wilson was the SP. It was uh, the four of us. I mean, I'm, I was among legends that night, you know, when I went out to fly. Um, man, it was kind of an honor to be selected to go and do it. Um, you know, so looking back on it. And then things from there just heated up. I think sometimes we get so matter-of-fact talking about our deployments that we forget to talk about the emotion of it. And especially for Gary, he's been gone so many times that it took a few tries to get him to really talk about what it felt like to invade another country. CW4 Jamie Haas, later CW5. He walked into the tent right before we kicked off. Kicked over an MRE box, stood on. He ain't nothing but like five foot seven. Got up on there, and he was a veteran of the first Gulf War. Jamie was a legend, man. He'd already been there. Jamie kicks over, kicks over the box, tells everybody to shut the hell up, gathers us all around, and like a real like John Wayne school veteran, he gets up there and he says, "Boys, I don't know about you, but I've already made my peace with God. I can still remember this to this day, but I've already made my peace with God about killing and living. I suggest you do the same." Because what we're about to go and do, who knows what's going to happen. And I, right then, I was like, you know what? I went back to my cop. I did a little prayer. Just like, you know, kind of one of those things like, hey, I'm going to go do your just cause. And I, I just got a peace over me. And he said one other thing I thought was, and it's live with me somewhere between hitting the start switch and pulling that collective. You're going to go right back into training. And man, he didn't lie. That first night mission, uh, MVG mission, I was nervous. Um, and I was so glad I was with Mark Teed, man, you know, just a real seasoned MTP. Uh, I was in the left seat and so nervous when, the, when he hit the switch, but as soon as the switch was over and he's like, all right, let's start going through the checklist. When I started through a checklist, man, just everything went away and I went right back into training mode. You know, we all realized that somewhere we, we were going to come right into training mode. So if you were, if you were cheating yourself on training, well, good luck with you. If you've been doing what's right, you'll be all right. For Gary, some of the same issues with training, though, came up for him as they did for Colonel Blackman, that 
what they had trained for wasn't necessarily what they ended up doing. And so I was curious to know who was really at the forefront in the unit of making some of these changes of saying, hey, guys, we're going to not hover anymore. And hey, guys, we're going to fly low and we're going to fly fast and we're going to use different techniques than what we've practiced for stateside. It was kind of like everybody. I mean, everybody came back and, you know, because Iraq being flat and you could be seen from a long distance and shot from a long distance, you know, with, with Sam's as everybody felt better, low and fast, as opposed to what we were doing before, you know, the whole NIE thing through the trail, getting to the BP set left stack, right? Like that all went out the window and everybody felt safer if we were maneuvering so that the heat seeking missiles couldn't find us. Man, there's a lot of guys that drove. I mean, they I mean, they flew them hard and fast. I mean, they went by checking people's mailboxes. Like, they were that low. And then popping up, zipping around. I mean, like, you just kept maneuvering. That's all you thought about was to stay alive. Yeah, I mean, everybody talked about it. I mean, everybody came back. The old guys came back and said, yeah, you ain't getting me to hover. Especially, you got to understand, like, the size of the cities is what you were worried about. I mean, like, if I put you, I mean, give me a good-sized city. Okay, you're familiar with Nashville, right? Let's say that the um, the Coliseum or where the Predators play, that's where the fight's happening. Like the ground guys are in that bar. What's behind you? What's underneath you? All those buildings. So do you really want to come to a hover when somebody can just walk out and smoke check you? And that's what we were worried about. We were worried about just those little pockets of resistance that were, mo- that were missed and then they could just walk out and just shoot you if you were at a hover. So everybody kept maneuvering. And if you did come to a hover, I laced for a Hellfire on a, on a Toyota gun truck one time, and we had to come to a hover in order to see it. But you put your third wheel. I was in a third wheel at that time. In other words, we always called it a three-legged dog. You had you know, prime, you know, scout gun, and then you had a, a, another one that went behind you. And his whole job was just to fly back and forth behind you just to keep people off the roofs. And... Um, but yeah, I mean, we figured it up on the fly, man. American ingenuity. I will say that training did do one thing for me. I would say it, it allowed me to be adaptive. And that my senior W3s and 4s quickly realized that we couldn't do what we trained for. This fast-paced war was not going to work that way. Um, it's just because it's the first time I had seen stuff like this, minus the great John Wayne films. The first one I remember. So 325 had surrounded the town of Asamoah. And they were just kind of hanging out. They, their idea was they were supposed to secure Asamoah, in other words, for Highway 7 to keep supplies going to 3ID. And that's what we did. We just kind of had to ring around the town, minus the, I think it was the Euphrates River that cut through the backside. We had three teams out that day. And the captain called up. I was flying with the commander. He was behind me. I was with Jeff Summers. And uh, they told us, hey, man, go up to this grid. They're getting ready to bomb the Bath Party headquarters in town. And I'm like, wow, this should be interesting. They're like, yeah, we got an F-18 on station from the Navy. So the other team was up there getting ready to laze. They ran out of gas. So we ran up there. We're waiting around. I ran out of gas. The other team pulled up. We actually went back to the FARP, got gas, went back up. And on the way up, man, you've seen six 500-pound bombs go off. You know, that was the real, like, no kidding. There's people in there that want to kill you. So... Let's kill them first. Uh, the Kiowas got the lace for it. Yeah, I mean, how many? No, nobody had done that, like in any kind of training. 
you know, Kyle pilots back then were trained to be quarterbacks. Like that's what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to go out and find the enemy, just like Vietnam. I mean, there's no difference. We find the enemy, and we just figure out how to screw them up. You know, and, and our job is to quarterback. Well, that's the first time I've been I've been part of it. You know, like I I'd, I'd actually seen on a real building. You know, you know, like that's real war. I mean, you know what I mean? Like that's surreal. I mean. I don't know. That's just crazy. It was it was surreal. Gary and I went on, of course, to talk about killing and those first couple of instances in which he experienced death on the battlefield. He told me the story about coming upon a Marine convoy that had been ambushed and seeing dead enemy combatants on the battlefield. And I think more importantly, he decided to share the evolution he's gone through between that first experience and how he maybe feels now. Actually, when I looked up in front and saw the Marine AAV, I was like, I didn't even care. I, I really swear to God, it's just, just I, I didn't. Uh, the ones that I've cared at since, I mean, those, those took place in Afghanistan. You know, as the war progressed, my, my emotions changed. My sons had gotten older, and I was starting to shoot people that looked like my son. Like they were the same age. And that was... That was got that got somewhat disturbing. God, how old was I in two thousand one? I think I was like thirty years old or something like that. And then I left. I don't know. I left when I was forty six, so fifteen years of this stuff. You're still out there doing the same damn thing. It gets old, you know. It's just, oh man. Between deployments to Iraq. Gary went back to Fort Rucker to train to become an instructor pilot. He then moved to Fort Campbell, which of course is where I would catch up with him a few years later. While both Colonel Blackman and Gary deployed to Iraq and learned a lot there about how to fly when we're not fighting the Russians, there would be yet another learning curve, the mountains of Afghanistan. And that is where we catch them in the next episode of our series, The Death of the Kiowa. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you have a spare moment and would like to rate and review, we would greatly appreciate your feedback. At the end of the series, we will host a special question and answer episode. If you have any questions you would like to ask myself or any of our cowboys, please reach out to us at membersofsocietypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at membersofsocietypodcast. Until next week. Death Rides.